Hello and welcome to Inside Business, a podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Laura Slattery and on today's podcast we're talking about the state of play for house prices and the central bank's warning that the Irish economy could be put at risk of a new credit price spiral. Industrial correspondent Martin Wall will also be here to give us an update on a proposed restructuring at RTE. But first, I'm joined by Charlie Taylor from the Irish Times, who has a roundup of this week's business news. Hi, Charlie. Hello there. How are you doing? We're going to start with the world of fintech. What's been happening? Well, it's a great payday for um, prepaid financial services. Niall Moore and, and his wife, Valerie Willis, who are in for a nicer little money earner as they've sold their company to an Australian group called EML. So tell me a little bit about their company, Prepaid. Yeah, they're one of the biggest issuers of payment cards in the country. They, uh, Among the solutions they do are sort of virtual prepaid cards, IBAN accounts in the UK and Eurozone. They're across quite a lot of spaces there. And they started the company just on their kitchen table, is that correct? That's right, yeah. It started off as a real sort of mar and power operation and it's, it's expanded substantially over the years. And they've made it all the way now to the Australian Stock Exchange, so that's Absolutely. a good news story for them. Yeah. But the deal also shows kind of the strength of the Irish fintech sector. That's right, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of praise in recent years for the fintech company and there's a lot of strong players in here, the likes of AQ Metrics, Fenigo and stuff. You know, and there was a report come out from Enterprise Island just last year which kind of showed the strength of the sector and according to their stats that they had done, there's as many as 7,000 people working in the fintech sector locally, which is considerably more than I think most people would guess would be in the space because they typically think, oh, it's a couple of startups there with sort of two men operations. You know, but they're saying, you know, a lot of those fintech companies have big plans to expand in terms of employee numbers. And also uh, we're, we're all expecting to grow their revenue substantially in the next year or two. So that's good news for them. Now, it's been not so good news for the revenue commissioners, they're having a little bit of an embarrassing week in what's a very important week for them. Why is that? That's right. It's blushes all round for for revenue and their online payment, uh, online filing system, which is called ROS, um, which is one embarrassing partly because it's one of the state's kind of flagship e-government services. It's won multiple awards over the years. And in fairness, it has always worked to treat. But this week, there's been problems. And in what is a really difficult week, because while a lot of people file their submissions for the October 31st, more and more people now have been pushed to file their file their returns online. And the problem is, is that the system crashed yesterday due to the heavy demand on it. And, you know, it was supposed to be up and running again today, but there was there was problems again with it today. It was taken offline until one o'clock and given a boot again or yeah. whatever, so, or something similar by the, by the technical wizards. And it's up and running now. They say there's been about 8,000 submissions. That was up until about 2 p.m. today. Overall, there was an expected 25,000 submissions that were outstanding as of early this morning. They are all expected to be filed on time, providing there's no more issues. And the likelihood is is that, you know, everything should be fine by the end of the week. Now, Revenue, one thing they have had to do is to offer an amnesty for late filers. Usually, if you file later than expected, you get uh, charged a 5% surcharge. But they've lifted that because obviously there's people having issues filing their returns this week. One thing I realised uh, this year when I was talking to the Revenue Commissioners was that, yes, as you mentioned there, October 31st is, is the paper uh, filing mm-hmm. deadline. But they announce it every year, this extension for online filing. It's not sort of a done deal. Um, so it's it's kind of an acknowledgement that, and, and I suppose it's an incentive for more and more people to um, file online. But now they've had to, because of these technical problems, 
announce extensions to the extension, it doesn't really bode <laughs> that too well for, I suppose, next year. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, the big push in, in over the last 10 years or so has been to get everyone to file their returns online. This obviously makes it simpler both for people who are filing and for revenue itself to be kind of going through the submissions. But obviously, then when you've got the majority of people doing it there, that extension is becoming a bit of you know a bit of an issue because everyone leaves everything to the last minute, which is you know which was would have been yesterday and is now kind of pushed out to the end of this week. Yes, yeah, so the last thing anyone wants is technical problems to to spoil the joy of doing a tax return. So, uh, so <laughs> finally, the central bank uh, they're gearing up to do a bit of a review. In fact, it's a, it's a major piece of work on uh, dual pricing practices in insurance. Now, what is dual pricing? Why is it controversial? That's Charlie? a good question. I mean, you'll know of it because it's you know it's where uh, insurers kind of offer different prices depending on the customer. So they might do you're a new customer, so they're going to offer you a better rate than they would offer to insurers. Now, even see- if you have the same risk profile. Uh, Absolutely. You have exactly the same risk profile, depending on where you live, etc. All of those things that they typically take into consideration. But they might kind of go, well, we want your business, so we're going to offer you a special introductory rate. We might whack it up again, unbeknownst to you, if you're not paying attention at the end of the year. But right now, you'll you'll be suckered into kind of going, that's a really good deal. Now, th- now this is a sort of practice that's it, it's, it's certainly not illegal. And it's kind of commonplace. You see, you know, broadband operators, you know, satellite TV providers, they're airlines. all doing these ex- airlines, etc., all doing these sort of things. The difficulty is, I mean, Pierce, Pierce Doddy of Tim Fain, for example, has has described the practice of dual pricing as a rip-off that punishes customer loyalty for mm-hmm. one issue. Mm-hmm. But also there's a, there's an indication that the FCA, which is the, the UK equivalent of the central bank, has also been kind of considering a ban on dual pricing because it says it targets vulnerable people for higher premiums with, with more insurers using machine learning, etc., to kind of crunch the figures. It's easier to work out who is least likely to question the renewal when it comes up next year. So those people that are, you know, either lazy and won't kind of check the price rises on their renewal or perhaps aren't sophisticated, you know, perhaps aren't sophisticated enough to be able to kind of go, okay, I should be looking into this, get punished rather than those that are really kind of on the ball and will keep looking around to see what is the best deal. So Derville Rowland, uh, who's Director General of Financial Conduct at the Central Bank, she was at the Oireachtas hearing this uh, week, which I was listening to myself. And what did she have to say? Yeah, well, she she did point out, you know, I mean, it's, you know, there's been a suggestion the Central Bank, this isn't the first time the Central Bank has kind of hinted us a move on this. Now, she did say, you know, and the Central Bank has pushed pushed this a few times, that it doesn't have a role in the pricing of premiums. So it's limited in what it can do. But what it can do is sanction firms for breaching the Consumer Protection Code. And that is something that it can move big big time on because it can fine firms of up to 10 million or 10% of annual turnover for what it sees as regulatory breaches. So after they do this study, they may have recommendations on this area, but I suppose they don't want to sort of penalise people who are, you know, getting good deals by shopping around. That's always been an encouraged thing and, and sort of seen as a way of actually keeping prices down overall. Absolutely. So it's, it has to tread a fine line. So it's going to be a difficult one for, for the central bank to work out. It's, it, you know, said it's undertaken a huge review in this. And I guess it's like, watch this space to see what happens from here. OK, thanks very much, Charlie. 
Amid a housing shortage that's painful for many, the central bank is under pressure to relax its mortgage restrictions and make it easier for people to borrow to escape the rent trap. But both deputy governors of the central bank have made statements this week warning against such a move. Owen Burke-Kennedy and Joe Brennan are here with me. Owen, I'll come to you first because you're fresh from a Department of Housing ESRI conference at which Sharon Donnery was speaking. What did the deputy governor have to say? Yeah, well, she addressed a number of the issues you've just mentioned, but um, she started off her speech uh, with a few stats just to put into sharp focus just how challenging the current crisis is. And one of them was that for every 12 jobs created in, in Dublin over the last five years, just one new home has been built. So that really puts it into kind of sharp relief, just the, the level of pressure uh, that housing represents. Now, having said that, she warned that any easing of the restrictions around credit, as as a lot of people are calling for, was not the answer to the current housing shortage and risked the emergence of another credit price spiral. So a credit price spiral is one where more people borrow, the more prices go up and so on, so on, that we all saw during the boom. And that was exactly what happened uh, this time round. Obviously, credit is much more locked down. So uh, the, 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 the central bank's rules, which limit borrowers to borrowing three and a half times their income, have, have, have really put a lot of uh, uh, limits on purchasing power in places like Dublin, less so in, in uh, the regions. And so uh, there has been calls for the central bank maybe to consider relaxing them. Um, and they are currently under review. Now, in her speech, uh, Ms. Donnery said, you know, before we jump to conclusions about the role of the mortgage measures, it's worth taking a step back and looking, you know, at how the Irish housing market compares with other markets globally. And there is a lot of similar pressures in other markets. So she thinks, you know, maybe uh, easing credit is not the answer. And there's no real um, economic uh, suggestion that easing credit would actually pick up supply. And supply is actually picking up, but obviously it's still lagging demand by a lot. Okay, we might talk about supply a little more later on, but I'll come to you, Joe. Uh, what Sharon Donnery was saying today, it chimes very much with what her fellow Deputy Governor Ed Sibley was saying at a bank industry conference uh, this week. What did he have to say? So Ed Sibley was out at the Banking and Payments Federation of Ireland uh, annual get-together uh, yesterday. And he was saying basically that it often is the case that as the economic cycle goes on, as you progress through the cycle, you get towards the top of a cycle. You see a lot of pressure coming from various kind of uh, elements to try and get an easing of, of, of regulation. Um, and he pointed out that an IMF uh, paper earlier this year just kind of charted that right back through the through the centuries. And what he's seeing now is a kind of what he called as echoes of the hubris that we saw back in 2007 uh, before the last crash. And he's saying this is kind of seen when you hear the likes of uh, banking CEOs calling for a relaxation of the, the, the mortgage rules. Uh, and obviously, we saw a an interview with uh, AIB's new chief executive, uh, Colin Hunt, last month calling for that kind of relaxation, saying that the rules have done their job uh, and that house price inflation had eased. Now, the central bank would say that it never targeted house price inflation or trying to ease house prices. It was about credit. It was about pre- protecting individuals from themselves and banks from themselves uh, when it comes to borrowing. Uh, House prices are another matter. Um, So also we saw other elements of that. We saw the 
Taoiseach in, in July talking about uh, calling for an easing of, of, of the mortgage rules to take into account that uh, borrowers uh, or would-be borrowers uh, who are stuck in a rental trap uh, are finding it difficult to build up the necessary deposits to, to, to get a mortgage. And this is a very real problem, but I guess there's also the sense that um, there might be an election next year and the uh, government is under pressure to show that it is at least considering maybe helping people who are trying to escape the rental sector. But th- those rules, the central bank rules, they're there for a reason, aren't they? Yeah, um, and I think we have a new central bank governor, uh, Macloof, uh, Gabriel Macloof, who came in in September. There have been kind of, you know, there has been speculation maybe that he may ease the, the, the regulations, but certainly the soundings we're getting from, from source in the central bank, the, the new governor is as insistent on these rules being a permanent uh, macroprudential t- tool available to the central bank. So, Owen, you touched on it there, but there is a particular problem in Dublin, isn't there? As you mentioned, that the the rate of construction just isn't matching the rate of job creation and the affordability pressures are also at the sharpest in the capital. Yeah, so we had a few reports over the last few days um, just reflecting this. um, The Dublin Economic Monitor, which is a report that's compiled on behalf of the four local authorities, they released a report last week that showed... um, housing completions in the capital fell by nearly 14% in the second quarter of this year and uh, commencements were also down. This is the first time in five years that we've had, if you like, a contraction in housing output. So a lot of people thought uh, a lot of people. This precipitated another, uh, uh, you know, number of calls for the central bank to ease its mortgage rules, and that maybe that might be denting, denting purchasing power and uh, in turn leading developers not to build as much. But then another voice came in, uh, Savos Director of Research, John McCarthy, said, well, maybe the fall off in supply reflect a pause in building prior to uh, the changing of the regulations in March 2008, which is now washing through the system. And it might be just a small blip before we go on. And of course, that was then... Another intervention. Another intervention, this time from the Building Control Management System, which is one of the regulatory authorities, and they have figures for commencements showing that commencement did actually tick upwards in the third quarter. So an array of of different stats uh, uh, being used by various different uh, commentators to pursue different arguments, confusing uh, at the moment. And also this week, the ESRI said that Irish house prices, uh, Irish houses, they're not overvalued uh, despite rising eighty five percent since yeah, the boom. Yeah, this is this is something that's likely to to make some people incensed. But anyway, what, what the ESRI did is they they looked at prices and rents over an extended period, and they found that they were actually despite rising 85%, this is prices now nationally, house prices nationally over the the last five years, that they weren't out of sync with other metrics in the economy, uh, such as employment, such as wages, such as household spending. So that's not to say that houses are affordable, because it's pretty obvious at nine times the average salary in Dublin, they're not for the majority of people. But what the Eurosize uh, study is, it's at that price, prices are not, uh, you know, spiraling out of control and hinting that there may be a no, another bubble around the corner. That's what the, the metric really indicates. 
So I suppose a, a bubble kind of can happen when the, uh, the short-term interests of the banks uh, align with perhaps also short-term interests of, of would-be borrowers. And <laughs> everybody's very happy to lend and everyone's very happy to borrow, but without perhaps uh, concern to the, the longer-term picture. Um, Joe, Ed Sibley was also talking about the issues that banks have over the longer term with their customers and how they value their customers. What did he have to say there? Yeah, so we, we highlighted the kind of the, the slogans that the banks are kind of trotting out at the moment. You know, we highlighted slogans like backing brave. That's what AIB has at the moment. And uh, providing help for what matters. That's Ultra, Ultra Bank's slogan and the Bank of You, KBC. And he says, these are all very admirable statements and, and show no doubt that banks um, are putting emphasis on maintaining long-term relationships with their banks. But he says, time and time again, the banks have had to be forced by the central bank or pressed by the central bank to, to actually you know, take their customers into account. Um, and he sees that that's been uh, very obviously shown in the bank's handling of the tracker mortgage uh, scandal over the last number of years, but also in terms of non-performing loans. And while banks have been focusing on restructuring loans over the last number of years and the level of non-performing loans has fallen from about 30-35% back in 2013 to about 7.5% now, largely due to banks restructuring both uh, mortgages and, and SMEs, they are approaching the kind of trickier cases and increasingly they're resorting to selling off those the non-performing loans. Now, banks are mm-hmm. under pressure to hit certain targets, regulatory targets to, to lower non-performing loans. But he's saying that, you know, while the central bank sees loan sales as a tool, he says it's not necessarily the preferred tool that the central bank would have for, for, for banks uh, to, to deal with non-performing loans. And he kind of is really pushing banks to, to make an extra kind of push to go through their files again, go through uh, their customers and try and reach settlements, particularly with the kind of the, the, the trickier cases that they are seeking to, to offload. Because, of course, they've been subject to, to much uh, criticism in, in this area. Um, you were also writing this week, Joe, about uh, new mortgage lending figures. They are going to overtake repayments on home loans uh, next year for the first time since the crisis. What's that mean? Yeah, so back, the peak of the of the, 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 the mortgage lending market was in 2006 and about 40 billion of loans uh, were issued and actually was almost equal to the size of the entire market about four or five years, five or six years before that. Um, the, the, the peak of the, the market in terms of the outstanding uh, volume or value of, of loans uh, was about 150, 149, 150 back in 2008, 2009. That contracted dramatically um, over the last decade as you know, banks restructured loans, wrote off some debt, but also as borrowers and households paid back uh, loans at a much faster rate than taking on additional debt. And we've seen that the mortgage market uh, contract to about 93, 93 billion uh, from 150 billion over the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see the... Davey had a report out earlier this week and they expect that the mortgage market will kind of hit a point now uh, where it'll actually start growing next year. Um, and obviously banks are under pressure to grow their, their own balance sheets as well and, 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 and their lending. So next year will kind of be the, the, the time when they actually see the, 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 the mortgage books beginning to, to build uh, again. But so that's partly again, why they're base. having a word in the year of the central uh, bank. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So feel free, both of you, to, to, to jump in on this. But I just wanted to ask about, you know, what's the kind of general fear right now? How would you would how would you assess it that, that Ireland is repeating some of the mistakes that were made in the run up to the 
to the crash? Well, I, I think, you know, I mean, we've had just a rapid bounce back in prices. And for people trying to buy, it's, it's kind of felt like the boom time again. But uh, on the kind of banking side, on the central bank side, we've had a you know selling off of non-performing loans. We've had household deleveraging debt, so we just haven't had the same credit binge that we had the first time round. So it is very different. But from a from a person who's trying to buy perspective, for somebody who's trying to get on the property ladder from the pressures in Dublin, you know it has hallmarks of the same kind of build up in pressure. Uh, that the boom brought us. But, you know, it, it just doesn't have the same credit risk uh, as last time. Joe? Yeah, certainly. Look at the the, the mortgage rules have done their job. Uh, we also see that household uh, borrowing levels uh, as a percentage of, of, of disposable income, which was about 200%, over 200%, uh, back at the height of the crisis. That's come back dramatically to about, I think, less than 120% now. So we're seeing households have, have, have deleveraged dramatically as, as well as, as, as businesses. But we are seeing noise and hearing noises again um, from various uh, quarters looking for an easing of the mortgage rules. And as Ed Sibley said, you know, it is precisely at the wrong time when the, the these rules tend to be relaxed internationally. And we're probably getting to that stage now where, you know, regulators need to be at their, keeping a very close eye as to, as to what, they, what they're doing. Well, on that costly note, I'd like to thank Owen Burke-Kennedy and Joe Brennan. You're listening to The Irish Times. RTE has announced it will seek up to 200 redundancies as part of cost-cutting proposals designed to save £60 million over the next three years. It's also signalled pay cuts for top staff and a pay freeze across the board. Martin Wall has been following the developments as unions seek more details from RTE management on their plan. Martin, what's the latest from Montrose? Well, what is going to happen will be that there were meetings held between the management side and the trade unions, the trade union group representing the 1800 staff in recent days. Union sources indicated that they are still, that those meetings, they're still unclear about the the, the actual details of the RT plans. Um, following those meetings and they want further details. On a high level, the unions have indicated that they are completely opposed to any form of compulsory redundancies. And I think the NEJ, the National Journalist staff out there, their their local um, meetings out there have indicated that they believe they will be particularly, they will be opposed to the plans. They'll also be opposed to any further pay cuts. Um, the RTE staff maintained that they took pay cuts uh, back um, after the economic crash in 2009. And in recent times, that has been have been restored, the process has been restored. But I think really what the RT group of unions will be looking for for the management to spell out is where the management have spoken in relation to that they want a pay freeze. A pay freeze is reasonably self-evident to explain. But when they talk about tiered pay reductions, for who and who is going to be, how much will be involved in it. And then the issues of a review of benefits and work practice reforms. Now, I think the unions will want specifics in relation to what work practices are you actually, do they have in mind? And what do they want to, how do they want, how do they see them being reformed? I think the unions will maintain and do maintain that there was an agreement reached in 2012 with RTE management, which provided for greater flexibility, which provided for work practice changes. And union sources maintain that the management side didn't really implement that to its fullest degrees. So they maintain that there are already existing agreement in place which could allow for that. So I think they'll be waiting for the management to spell out in greater detail what do they mean in relation to the the the, the cuts. I think one other piece that will obviously if the unions are talking they will oppose compulsory redundancies. Mm-hmm. I think it will be a huge issue for the unions because across 
the broader public sector, unions have absolutely and totally opposed the concept of compulsory redundancies. If it was to be conceded in RTE, I think the unions would fear that it could happen elsewhere in other companies that are under pressure in the state sector. So I think the unions will be very, very um, absolutely it'll be a line of the sand that they, for, for compulsory redundancies. And it's incredibly sensitive, that point, isn't it? Because for the reasons you say, it sets a precedent. Um, and, you know, there had been talk over the summer in the Dáil about uh, there being a potential need, shall we say, or th- th- that's how it was interpreted for compulsory redundancies. But last week, uh, Director General D. Forbes, you know, maintained that there would absolutely not be any compulsory redundancies. But unions, of course, have uh, the a very kind of real fear that... In effect, you know, these are, you know, at least we could call them quasi-compulsory redundancies, particularly in areas where uh, services are being shut down or sold off. Well, I think the unions will point to the situation of Lyric in Limerick and to say, well, it's it is, it's it's fine for someone to say, well, the jobs will be, we're not closing down Lyric, we're, we're, the services will move, the provision of services will move to Cork or to Dublin. But I think unions will argue that when you, when you look at that on the ground for people who actually work in an organization in you know a city such as limerick their lives are based there their families are based there it is not easy to suddenly up sticks and move to cork or to dublin or whatever and that in effect a move such as that not necessarily in that context but in such as that to say to somebody who's working in limerick or galway or sligo or whatever that we're moving a job to dublin that is not really practical in many cases mm-hmm. and it, it could constitute de facto asking people to leave their jobs. So that, that that will be, I think, will be looked at very carefully as well. I think the issue in relation to what is going to happen with the position in relation to the staff, the 12 or so staff who work for the RT Guide, is going to be very um, is- a very problematic issue for the uh, for the unions as well. Because this is because the suggestion is that those staff will not even be permitted to take any voluntary package that's on offer. They will be sold with with the title, I mean, I don't believe they have a buyer as of yet, but that's the, that's the idea. Yeah, I think the the, the 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 company has indicated that the RT guide is for sale, and I think the indication was to the to the to the staff initially, at least, was that the staff would move with the title to another operator under what is known technically as a transfer of undertakings. Now, I think that will be cause real issues. I think the unions have already indicated the phrase you use is a phrase that they that has been used by staff in Montrose about that the staff will be sold with the title being sold. I think that is going to cause significant difficulties. I think that the Director General D4 subsequently came back and said that that could be discussed with the unions and it will be. Um, so that is another potential flashpoint just to keep an eye out for and watch out for as it um, as as it goes. And I think. The last piece that we'll need to, we, they want, we'll be looking at quite cl- carefully is, is if there's not going to be compulsory redundancies, if they're going to be voluntary redundancies, what are the actually terms of the voluntary redundancy package? Um, I think in in two, there was a package offered in 2017. I think at the time the company looked for up to 300 people to go. About 100 and I think they got 160, half to, yeah, I believe. half to two thirds yeah. certainly of that number. So it was significantly a shortfall, and I think at that time it was. Um, they were th- th- those with more than ten years were offered six weeks pay per year of service, inclusive of statutory, and it was capped at one hundred and four weeks pay. So, will the issue that be will the terms for the new redundancy package be more generous than than the pre the last time round, or will it be the same? If you didn't get the, the numbers you were looking for on the terms you were offered before, will it happen 
now and if you don't what happens then but other than that I suspect that RTE will also have to talk with the Department of Public Expenditure in relation to the terms of any um, voluntary redundancy scheme that they're offering because of the potential knock-on implications elsewhere in other organisations particularly in the commercial state sector where we have issues in relation to Bordemona at the moment there are where there's going to be presumably voluntary redundancies and potentially others so the issues will the, the, those are issues that will have to be thrashed out in the in the weeks ahead so I think we're where the heat may have gone out of the RT story in the last couple of days, I think it will be back, and we will hear more of it as the um, as we get into the full details of the negotiations in the in the in the in the days and weeks ahead. I mean, I suppose one thing that I'm interested in is whether or not you know they will get the voluntary applications. As you say, it, it may not uh, be any better than the last scheme. It, it may not be the same scheme at all. Um, I think about 60 people are, are connected to the orchestras and, and that that's included and that's uh, 200 number. The, the, the National Symphony Orchestra is in this process, uh, which will take a while, I believe, of, of going to the National Concert Hall. Well, but, I think also that, that, that SIP2, who represents a lot of the staff in the orchestra, maintained that that proposed move of the orchestras from RTE to the National Concert Hall is not a done deal. It is in negotiation, but it is not a done deal. And I mm. presume they will want to see what what arrangements are made in relation to staff moving to the orchestras, what guarantees they get, or moving moving with the orchestras to um, the National Concert Hall. So that that is certainly one issue. So there, so there are a large number of questions, and particularly the big question I would have thought really is, is that if they, if RT do not get the numbers that they had sought on this time around, in the way they didn't get it the last time around, what happens then? And in relation to any voluntary redundancy programme, it ultimately comes down to the individual choice of an individual employee, whether they take it or whether they don't. And people's circumstances change over time. And there may very well be more people who maybe feel that they it's time to move on at this point, but there may not be. So again, we'll just have to wait and wait and see how that works out. OK, well, there will be more on this in future, I'm sure. But for now, thank you very much, Martin Wall. That's it for this week's Inside Business. My thanks to Charlie Taylor, Owen Burke-Kennedy, Joe Brennan and Martin Wall. This podcast was produced by Declan Conlon with JJ Vernon on sound. You can get the latest business news straight to your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email on irishtimes.com. But we'll be back next week. Until then, thanks for listening. 